so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Oh, do you need reading glasses now? I always need glasses, um, but that's not really a new thing. Mm. You never wear them for our podcast. I always wear them for our podcast, so. actually. No, I do. No. Okay. Let's I have. Do I not always wear glasses? Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week is Brent Leatherwood. Did you miss me last week, Brent? I'm sure, just like everyone in our audience, yes, I I missed you. What I want to tell the listeners behind the scenes is that's my third time asking you that question because you thought I was absent for many more weeks than I actually was absent. Yes. Yeah. That's that's all accurate. That explains the gray hair on your head. (laughs) I'm worried you're losing brain cells, Brent. Is that what this That's pod- a distinct possibility. <laughs> is that what this podcast is doing to you, <laughs> working with us? This podcast, this season, whatever. <laughs> whatever it might be. <laughs> oh, my word. Well, I we're really grateful that Matt Hensley joined you last week. I know listeners were encouraged by that and helped by that. This is the first time we've had an interview in a while. On yeah. The, on the podcast. And I like interviews. Yeah. It's, it's so much better just hearing what other people have to say rather than just us two. Pulling people from all over SBC life. That's a, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Maybe and we should do more of it. I'm sure that we will in the future, especially if you think that I'm going to be absent for more weeks in a row. You'll just go ahead and set up interviews. <laughs> Let's go ahead and talk about what's been happening lately. And we'll start with what the ERLC has been featuring First up is a piece by Hannah Daniel and Cooper Scholl about an important milestone in our history, and that is remembering the plight of the Afghans one year after the fall of Kabul. So you might remember August 15th will mark one year, as Hannah and Cooper say, since the fall of Kabul and the official collapse of the Afghan government. The anniversary is a sober reminder of the chaos that entailed following the U.S. withdrawal from the country. And I think probably what a lot of people would conjure up in their minds when they think about this are the horrific images of people falling from the landing gear of the plane, Mm. just trying to get out of Afghanistan, knowing that uh, when the Taliban was able to have free reign, that their lives were in danger. And so Hannah and Cooper walk through what happened. They walk through uh, all the refugees who have come from Afghanistan and how that process had to be sped up and so that they don't have formal refugee status and what barriers that creates. And then they talk about people that were left behind, allies who are truly in danger 
of being killed by the Taliban because of how they helped the U.S. uh, when the U.S. forces were there in Afghanistan. And what's really helpful at the end is they talk about the role of the church. They give several ways that we can help Afghan refugees in the United States and in our neighborhoods. Uh, So I would encourage you to read this article and think about and pray about maybe how the Lord might be calling you to get involved. So, Lindsay, picking up uh, on what you talked about with individuals who are still in Afghanistan. So, without revealing too much, our small group at church has come around uh, an Afghan family who's here in in Tennessee just to support them and, and try and help them get acclimated and, you know, accommodated here in America. And they still have multiple family members that are back in Afghanistan. And recently on one of our visits, one of our group's visits with the family, they shared the story of a family member who had been killed by the Taliban just that week. And uh, so this is a very real experience that these individuals are are going through. And it's not just this family, it's other uh, Afghans who who fled. And and that's that's the thing. And this gets to the policy aspect and and why we engage with it and and why we why we should care about it as as Southern Baptists. These individuals who fled, in many instances, the reason they are fleeing is not just because, you know, their society as they knew it collapsed with the withdrawal of American troops, particularly because many of those individuals actually were helping our troops were helping our intelligence uh, officials who were there uh, were were helping to keep the Taliban from actually uh, regaining control while our troops were there. And so uh, they were integral to what our military presence was doing in Afghanistan for so many years as that country was trying to rebuild uh, from the Taliban rule. And now that troops have come out and the Taliban has regained control and they're in power once again, they are trying to hunt down uh, those Afghan citizens that were helping uh, Americans. And so that's why they're fleeing. And in a sense, we have made a pledge to these individuals that we would protect you while we're in Afghanistan. And now that we were withdrawing, we would uh, offer them help and aid to get away from this type of persecution. And so because of that, I mean, really by any definition, these individuals are refugees. And uh, one of the central points of this article is that because of that, and because we made this this promise to them, we need to give them refugee status uh, because otherwise they are prevented from pursuing the legal routes and legal channels that otherwise should be available to, to other refugees so that they can actually become a permanent part of, of our nation and become new neighbors uh, for us. And so right now they're in this weird uh, situation where everything is just temporary. And that's not good, obviously, for for families, for them actually pursuing opportunities here. And And that's where our advocacy comes in is we're trying to remind uh, elected officials and, and policymakers, hey, follow through with the promise uh, that you made uh, to these Afghans um, because they are fleeing persecution. They're fleeing awful situations and they're fleeing a country 
that in many ways is going backwards now that the Taliban is there. There was a story earlier this week about how education levels are falling. So much of their society is just crumbling, whether it's economically or, or politically. And that's that's got to be hard uh, for individuals who for a while, uh, while American troops were present, uh, while it, it wasn't a, uh, a perfect government, there was more of a sense of they could participate civically. And that's all basically lost now. Well, and we highlight this at the ERLC because part of being pro-life, uh, it's not just caring for the preborn or vulnerable mothers, although it is no less than that, but it's caring for all of life. It's caring for the refugee and the immigrant and our vulnerable neighbors here and across the ocean. It's caring about human flourishing and well-being. And that's why we want to pay attention to things like this, especially as believers. Our God is one who has welcomed us in as a refugee from sin, so to speak. And uh, so we want to reflect that. Well, Matthew, we want to reflect Matthew 25, welcoming the stranger. That's right. Uh, I mean, th these individuals are strangers in, in our society. But the thing is, is our society made a pledge to them to keep them safe and protect them. And so we need to we need to welcome them and, and help them learn more about America and how to pursue opportunities here. And, and so that's, uh, there is a very much a, a biblical heart behind this. Another piece that we're featuring this week by Jordan Wooten is also highlighting an aspect of being pro-life, and that's the issue of adoption. It's titled, Three Takeaways from a Recent Survey of Adoptive Parents. And so Jordan looks at a survey by the National Council for Adoption, and they've called this the largest survey ever conducted on adoptive parents, which we don't always hear the perspective or surveys done on the perspective from adoptive parents. And the three takeaways that he sums up, because there are a lot of takeaways from this survey— is that highlights the importance of adopting children with special needs and caring for the parents who have adopted children with special needs. He says, as of early 2021, there were an estimated 134,000 children with special needs awaiting permanent homes. And, you know, in a society where people are viewed because of their ability to perform, so at a utilitarian ethic, what people can do for you, I think... Christians should be among those people who are ones who are stepping up to adopt and or care for those who cannot contribute in a way that the whole society might expect. And we proclaim their worth and their dignity, regardless of their ability. Another aspect that he highlighted is the cost of adoption. It really is wild when you look at it, how expensive it is to adopt. So he said, uh, according to the survey, the cost of private domestic adoption has nearly doubled over the last 20 years, rising from an average 17000 to 33000 And then inter-country adoptions has risen from an average cost of 22000 to 36000 And so obviously this is something we want to pay attention to, something we want to advocate for, for policymakers to think about how to take away the barriers for adopting. A lot of people might not be able to adopt because of the cost. And we want to make sure that children have an opportunity to have loving homes and that those parents who want to provide loving homes have the opportunity to adopt 
these precious children. And then he highlights the length of the adoption process, that those who took the survey, uh, the average length was a little more than 22 months, almost two years. And so, you know, does it need to be two years long? I don't know, policy-wise, but that's a tough road for a lot of parents. We have friends who are adopting or friends who have already adopted, and waiting that long and sometimes even longer is really heart-wrenching on parents. And so we need to come around them and support them and um, do whatever we can to encourage adoptive parents on their adoption road. Finally, we have a piece from John Fubert, who's a professor at Union University, about the importance of protecting our children from internet pornography. So we highlight the digital world around here. We talk about technology and ethics issues that Christians face in the digital world, and pornography is certainly at the top among those because of the availability of pornography in an internet age. Used to be you'd have to go to a dark alley to get it. There was shame involved. Now it's just a click of a button. Everybody has these days a smartphone, and so the reality is many of our children, regardless of how well they are protected at home, will be exposed to online pornography at some point in time in a way that is beyond our control. And so how can we equip our kids to be able to think rightly about pornography and to be able to resist that temptation when they are faced with it, to resist it and to flee that sexual immorality? So this book is um, helpful in that regard. It highlights various things about um, pornography. One of the things that he highlights is how pornography is violent and how it is so destructive to those involved in the pornography industry and how many of the women especially involved are just victims. It is very sad. And so he gives practical suggestions for talking to your kids and he breaks them down ages 8 to 12 ages 13 to 17, obviously you would, in wisdom, adapt this to your own children. But this has to be something that Christian parents and uh, mentors address with children because it is not an issue that they are going to be able to escape. But it is an issue that we can equip them to flee from. I'm sure that for a number of our listeners who are parents as the school year begins, this is this is something that's just in the back of their mind constantly. And as more and more schools are uh, utilizing uh, digital products so that, you know, our kids while they are in school are online more. It's it's just, I'm, I'm speaking from my own perspective. It's certainly a fear that I have. And, and so this piece just reinforces why we need to be mindful of it and gives us some helpful categories to prevent it. And I mean, gosh, you know, like there will be times where uh, my son will just want to watch uh, like a, a YouTube video. Uh, recently, he's he's in a season where he loves monster trucks. And so he'll just want to see like a, you know, 10-minute video of monster trucks. And, you know, the YouTube feature is, you know, it, it will just play a new video. And it, it just, it always worries me that that may lead down a path that I didn't, you know, I didn't intend for it to go down. And so you just, you have to be vigilant about these things. And, um and so, thankfully, there's there's some helpful tips to uh, for us as parents and uh, folks who might be mentoring kids or whatever to to prevent them. Because you mentioned YouTube, I have to tell you this story, and it doesn't it doesn't have to do with um, online pornography, but it has to do with the sexual revolution in our children. We were Marion likes to watch YouTube Kids, and I have some um, like protections on there, but she'll watch like 
Paw Patrol or whatever. Sure. Yeah. And she was watching um, Blue's Clues the other day because she got this like book that you can press buttons and make sounds. And so she wanted to watch Blue's Clues. And my husband was in there with her and he said, he called me in there. He said, you are not going to believe what I am seeing. And he's like, you have to come look at this. And so on Blue's Clues, on one of the YouTube videos uh, that it had switched to, it was Blue's Clues, the actual cartoon. And what was taking place was a Pride Day parade with flags and lots of rainbows and a drag queen singer. Mm. cartoon drag queen singer who looked a lot like RuPaul Mm -hmm. and was singing about different families and how this person has two moms and we celebrate their love, two dads. And we were just flabbergasted because this wasn't in the form of a video that would have looked suspicious to us, you know, as far as Mm -hmm. just blatant pornography. But this was something clearly pushing sexual immorality and an agenda that we just would not have suspected. So you just have to you have to keep your eyes open as parents and you have to be aware and we just have to have these conversations younger and younger with our children. With our 3-year-old, we already we start these. God made girls and boys. A mommy can marries a daddy, a daddy marries a mommy, but they don't marry daddy doesn't marry daddy, mommy doesn't marry a mommy. So we have to start these conversations early. And it's it's just important and thankfully God has equipped us in his word. Yeah, I know. I know that that that's surprising. I remember. Gosh, this was probably a few months ago. Somebody had flagged that Blues Clues officially, like the people behind Blues Clues, had released this sort of. Uh, I guess it's like LGBT affirming kind of uh, video, and so it sounds like y'all y'all stumbled onto that. And yeah, it, it can be jarring, and it goes back to the the word I, I said in my previous comment. Vigilance, you know, as as Christian parents, especially for our, our younger children and younger eyes, like we just we've got to be vigilant and, and aware uh, of what they may inadvertently stumble on. That's the thing with these digital products is children may just inadvertently just wander into uh, these sorts of things. And, you know, we've got a duty to let them know that we live in a fallen world and there's going to be things like this, but especially for someone as young as, as Marion's age. It's got to be got to be mindful. I'm hey, let me just say this and affirm this. I'm just thankful that Justin, your husband, was in there and was paying attention when when this came on. So uh, so kudos to y'all for for being vigilant. It's true. We are not always paying attention. I do admit, but even just creating an open a space for open dialogue, you know, where you talk about what you watch or whatever. We don't have to live in fear, although I am tempted toward fear, but. But we live in dependence on the Lord and plead with him for wisdom, like it says in James. So we're featuring a lot of other great content this week. But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, what's going on this week? So we'll start uh, with news that occurred within the Southern Baptist Convention to begin with. And this actually occurred last Friday. So it was after I had already recorded my conversation with Matt Hensley. And the news deals with an investigation opened by an arm of the Department of Justice into the Southern Baptist Convention. Last week, news broke that U.S. attorneys uh, were looking at how the Southern Baptist Convention and and churches have dealt with the issue of of sexual abuse. 
Fast forward to this week, and Baptist Press has filed a story that confirms this. The SBC is fully cooperating with authorities and remains committed to addressing the scourge of sexual abuse. John Wilkie, Media Relations Director for the SBC Executive Committee, confirmed to Baptist Press. Wilkie was unable to provide specifics as to what triggered this interest, uh, what potential criminal activities are being examined, or the scope or even time frame of the investigation, citing it as an ongoing legal matter. The reality is we, there's not a whole lot we do know. Uh, last week, I and uh, other leaders of the entities of the Southern Baptist Convention, including SBC President Bart Barber, we released a statement saying that you know we want to fully cooperate here uh, with any aspect of this, but the reality is there's just not a lot to go on. Uh, because of that, it's probably not great here for us to to speculate in, in any sort of way. But this is an important development, and it follows in recent years steps taken uh, by the Southern Baptist Convention to confront uh, sexual abuse and say this is something that uh, we are going to stamp out. It's going to be a long process to do that. And at the same time, we also have to admit that uh, this is an issue that hasn't been uh, dealt with uh, in the best ways previously. And that's why we had uh, an independent uh, examination and investigation by an outside group of the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee. That's why messengers affirmed that step to be taken. And that's why this last uh, June at the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting, uh, there was a report released uh, by that outside firm uh, looking into uh, the ways uh, that this issue has been handled or mishandled. And even prior to that, obviously, the ERLC's effort with the Caring Well Challenge, uh, which is an ongoing initiative. Uh, th- I mean, this is, this is an issue that we've been tackling uh, for several years, and it's an issue that we're going to continue addressing and this is just the the latest development. And admittedly, it's a big development. And so that's why I thought it merited us just surfacing here uh, for our audience. Well, and I'm encouraged that as the messengers have shown at the last annual meeting that they, messengers, most importantly, Christians, are committed to bringing the truth to light. And like you said, do all that we can to stamp out the scourge of sexual abuse from from our midst. So we will keep you updated as further developments come. But as probably most people are aware, uh, these sorts of inquiries, they can take quite some time to play out. So it may be a while before we we really know much um, of anything concrete. In other news this week, probably the, the top story of the week uh, that dominated uh, the area of politics and policymaking in Washington was the election loss by Congresswoman Liz Cheney in Wyoming. This story comes to us from the Washington Post, and it says this, Representative Liz Cheney, the once high-ranking Republican who defied her party to wage a lonely crusade against former President Donald Trump, hinted Wednesday about a White House bid after losing her Wyoming primary in a landslide. Harriet Hageman, a lawyer with Trump's endorsement, ousted Cheney on Tuesday, clinching the GOP nomination for Deep Red Wyoming's only House seat. Cheney fell in defeat despite her appeals to Democrats and independents to re-register as Republicans and vote for her. The race marked the last primary challenge to a small group of House Republicans 
who had voted to impeach Trump last year and are mostly set to leave Congress after a withering backlash. So this is an important uh, development for any number of reasons. As, as the Post points out, you know, she had been a critic of former President Trump uh, in Congress. She had been at one time a part of House leadership. Uh, that, that post was uh, taken away from her last year. And most recently, she's been the highest ranking Republican on the January 6th committee. And uh, look, the reality is Congresswoman Cheney, she is a conservative. She has a long conservative track record in the House. And you know her voting record is uh, probably as conservative as anyone else's uh, in, in the U.S. House. But the reality is uh, just all of these other factors began playing in her seat and she just wasn't able to, to hold on to it. Uh, what's interesting to me is out of this, and this is the where the Washington Post story goes further, she actually is openly contemplating running for the White House in 2024. That is, that's an interesting game plan to lose uh, a seat in Congress in a contested primary, but then out of that launch, uh, a White House bid. Most people would say on its face, ah, that's that's probably not likely. And I mean, look, looking at the numbers, it may still be. But one interesting thing is over the last few months, she's raised $14 million, and that goes into her federal account. She would be able to use that in a White House bid. So there, there's certainly some intriguing aspects to this. So for those among us who might not pay attention to politics as much or to Liz Cheney specifically, why might this matter to us? Yeah, well, I mean, it matters to us at the ERLC really just because Congresswoman Cheney has been someone in the House that has been largely supportive of many of the things, uh, policies, many of the initiatives uh, that that we've supported at the RLC. And it's a marker uh, for kind of where uh, parts of the Republican Party may be right now. But, but yeah, it's a major development in Washington. And the fact that she may use this as a platform to to run for the White House. So I I would say this is probably not the last that we have heard of Liz Cheney. Speaking of the January 6th committee that she is the vice chairman of, there was another bit of news this week that was fairly interesting, and it came from uh, New Hampshire, where former Vice President Mike Pence was speaking at an event at St. Elsom College. And this comes to us from NBC News, and it says this, former Vice President Mike Pence said Wednesday that he would consider testifying before the House January 6th committee if invited to appear, but he suggested he would need to sort out thorny constitutional questions before committing. Quote, if ever any formal invitation were rendered to us, we'd give it due consideration, he said, in reply to a question posed to him at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics, Politics and Eggs series. That sounds like a, an event you and I would like to go to, especially because we're hungry as we record this, Lindsay. Afterward, a spokeswoman for the House committee declined to comment on whether it plans to ask Pence to appear. In a recent interview with NBC News, the committee's chairman, Representative Benny Thompson, said both Pence and former President Donald Trump are on our agenda to be talked about as we meet. So, Brent, Mike Pence played a pivotal role on January 6th, and it seems like he might have important information. So, why do you think that the committee would want to hear from him? 
Well, yeah. So he was at the center of that, as as folks may remember. the The vice president has a role in confirming the results of a presidential election. He presides over the Senate doing that. And uh, on that day, uh, where you had rioters get into uh, the the U.S. Capitol complex, I mean, at, at various points, uh, we now know it seems like Vice President Pence's life may have been in danger. And uh, so I think the committee is is interested in, in talking to him about that experience. There's also, it, it's pointed out in this NBC News article, uh, is that there was a phone call that took place uh, between Vice President Pence and President Trump that they characterized as a tense phone call. Uh, January 6th committee may be interested in what was said during that. But Vice President Pence did point out there's not a whole lot of precedent uh, for a a former vice president speaking in front of Congress. And and to an extent, that's true. But as it also points out in this article, there have been several examples of presidents or vice presidents testifying to Congress, including in 1974, when then-President Gerald Ford testified publicly before a congressional committee about his decision to pardon Richard Nixon in the Watergate scandal. So, There's not a whole lot of history of this. What little history there is, it's fairly significant. Uh, Ford would also, I think it's like 1983, uh, go back before uh, a congressional committee. So maybe not the most accurate thing to say. It's completely unprecedented, but let's just say it's very rare. And so, uh, you know, and there's whole aspects here of executive privilege, you know, what is said in the as the business of the White House is conducted um, and separation of powers, you know, what's appropriate for Congress to know about executive branch operations. So those are the thorny uh, constitutional issues uh, that would need to be worked out before Mike Pence could conceivably do this. And even then, it's not exactly set. But just the fact that he opened the door to this possibility has intrigued a whole lot of uh, reporters and and people watching uh, what's going on with the January 6th committee. But underlying all that are the actual events that happened on January 6th. We have uh, said this before, uh, that political violence of any kind is unacceptable. And I think we uniquely as Southern Baptists and as Christians, uh, we, we should be at the forefront of condemning that. Recently, another instance of this kind may have happened, and this deals with the attack on author Salman Rushdie uh, took place in New York. Now, we don't know yet the clear motivations. This may just be a one-off instance of violence. At the same time, because of Salman Rushdie's controversial history, it's plausible uh, that there may be some political uh, violence behind it. So this story comes to us from CNN. And says this, the man accused of stabbing award-winning author Salman Rushdie last week on stage in Western New York State has been indicted by a grand jury. The attorney for suspect Hadi Matar, 24, of New Jersey, did not elaborate on the charges because he had not yet seen the document. The prosecutor's office also did not elaborate. Quote, we anticipated that the prosecutor would certainly present this matter for an indictment prior to any preliminary hearing. As such, we're prepared to go ahead with an arraignment today at 1 p.m. Rushdie, who has received death threats for his satirical and controversial book, The Satanic Verses, was about to give a lecture Friday at the Chautauqua Institution when an assailant jumped on stage and stabbed him repeatedly. 
75-year-old author suffered three stab wounds to his neck, four to his stomach, puncture wounds to his right eye and chest, and a laceration. Uh, so he was hospitalized. He was on a ventilator for a while. The backstory there on his book is it caused the Iranian government to uh, formally put out a religious fatwa that called for his murder uh, back when it was released. And for a long time, he was living under heavy security in London. So again, it's not known if that is the kind of underlying political or religious uh, motivation for this attack or if it is uh, just some you know, random occurrence of, of violence. Uh, either way, uh, we, we should be able to say, yeah, this is, this is actually not uh, how we should be conducting ourselves in our uh, society. So yeah, at a minimum, this is further evidence that we live in a highly combustible moment uh, where passions are uh, running high and some people cross a line and feel that they need to undertake uh, just heinous actions. And we need to be clear-eyed about this and say that this is not acceptable in any form. Well, and we're actually going to have a little bit more of coverage on this from a different international angle in our lead for our weekly, which is just a rundown of things that have been going on and, and articles that we've been featuring. So if if you do not get the weekly or if you want to just check out the article, I would encourage you to visit our site. Well, I appreciate that reminder, Lindsay, and that look ahead to the weekly. And so that's your look at This Week in Culture. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, I have a question for you. Most people say, what is it? Oh, what is it, Lindsay? (laughs) Are you quietly quitting? Please tell me the term. (laughs) Please tell me what the term means. (laughs) I'm intrigued. (laughs) Oh, I hope you don't have aspirations to be an actor. (laughs) Okay, so I learned on the Today Show about this thing called quietly quitting. Quietly quitting. Quiet quitting. It's a TikTok social media phenomenon thing among millennials and Gen Zs. So it's a rising get paid, don't work movement. This is from Axios. So employees are grappling with working from home and a tight talent market. And so they have the upper hand and can quiet quit. So they're rebelling against the rise and grind ethos. So they want to basically not put in a a ton of work that just exhausts them, but they want to focus on fun, fulfilling activities outside of work while staying on the payroll. And some people are even using this working remotely from nine to five you know, getting their work done to get a second job while they're on the payroll of the company. So this is very interesting. So there's a Gallup poll that says just 31% of workers born after 1989 say they're engaged at work and they're far less likely than their older counterparts to feel that their work has a purpose. So, but what Axios says is to people like you, Brent, who are in charge, don't glorify the grind. You can't boost engagement among these workers by just requiring that they sign off on those hours and eroding their work-life balance. They will just turn from quiet quitters to real-life quitters. Uh, But you want to communicate to them why your mission matters. You want to check in with them, and you want to figure out how to export company culture via Zoom. 
Here's one quote from a uh, quiet quitter. She says, I took a step back and said, I'm just going to work the hours I'm supposed to work, that I'm really getting paid to work. Besides that, I'm not going to go extra. (laughs) Don't you wonder if you have uh, some quiet quitters among us, Brent? Are you worried about any of us uh, millennials now? Well, I'm just, I'm so confounded by the, uh, the, the thought of quietly quitting but then seeking additional employment at the same time, like that, that seems to be contradictory. Yeah. Well, like I don't uh, like one job and I'm so tired of that one job. Let me go get a second one. Like yeah. that, that just seems. As one article I read said, it may have been Axios. You, you can be, instead of being really good at one job, you can just be mediocre at two. But I guess you're making more money. But still, it's unethical, I would say, to have a yeah, second yeah, job so. while you're yeah, exactly. yeah. on a company's payroll. Now, there are some good things within this movement. Like Wall Street Journal says they're trying to seek some kind of work-life balance. They uh, are in favor of family. They want to untether their careers from their identities. So those are some important things. It's just maybe you're going about it the wrong way if you are saying I'm basically quitting but not quitting yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah. So there's a whole work ethic thing going on exactly. there too. Yeah. But I do think Axios has a point and that that's all what you see with these young men that you're finding radicalized, especially in Islam. They want purpose. They want mission. And so you've, you have to communicate while your work matters. Well, there's no doubt we have a, a lot of disaffected uh, young males out there. And uh, yeah, I don't know. This is just such a bizarre story. I, I never would have thought about this, but yeah. So some we're, say- We're called to work. And uh, yes. in, in doing so, we, we, we are called to work and glorify God. That's right. Uh, and, and so- But we can recognize, like one gentleman says, quiet quitting, some assume it encourages people to be lazy when it actually reminds them to not work to the point of burnout. So we do have to realize that we are also working under the sun in a fallen world. Yes, right. But the 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 way to achieve a healthy work-life balance is not to get a second job. <laughs> no, no, not everybody is, though. Right. Not everybody is. So Ed just— not, well, Ed, I should be clear. There are many people out there, including bivocational pastors, who deal with two, if not more jobs— and so that's that's not what I'm uh, critiquing here. What what I'm critiquing here is is what the, is the quote that you just said, is that people not wanting to work towards burnout, and somehow they have in their mind think that the solution to that mm-hmm. is let me go get a second job. Let that's a second job. that's uh, that's what my my criticism is is aimed at. Anyway, it was a uh, interesting right interesting conversation sure. that well, I was watching going on. The, the the thing that I'm bringing to the lunchroom is also uh, dealing with employment. Uh, LeBron James, one of the all-time greats uh, in basketball, uh, he has signed an, a two-year extension with the Los Angeles Lakers worth reportedly about $98 million. $98 million, Lindsay. That's, uh, that is quite the payday. Uh, needless to say, I, I don't think uh, that LeBron James is is looking to quietly quit and pursue a second uh, job. What's more interesting to me, though, is this conversation. This was on the Today Show. That's actually where you saw it. Is it it opens the door for him possibly playing alongside his oldest son, who potentially would be drafted 
and be eligible to play in the NBA in 2024. That would be, that'd be really neat. I mean, yeah, that would having be very a son cool and father play together or play against one another in a professional sport, that, that actually would be, that'd be pretty cool to, to witness. Well, and not just any father and son, like LeBron James. Yeah, that some one of the arguing. greatest of yes. all time yes. and, and his son. Yes, that would be extremely cool to see. I I have to tell you, if I were, if I was one of his teammates in my fallenness and my flesh, I would be struggling with quiet quitting on the court knowing my uh, right. my teammate was getting paid $98 million. Because your, your $20 million dollars over right. two years just doesn't measure up. That's <laughs> why not you're like, I'm up. quietly quitting. I don't even have a category for two years, $98 million. <laughs> it, just, <laughs> it just... It does seem kind of like Monopoly money at that it point, is right? Just, uh, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, I just I need to I need to put in the requisite caveat that would come from our old friend Dan Darling that Michael Jordan uh, was better than LeBron James, so he's he's actually the greatest of all time. Well, I bet Michael Jordan is jealous because I don't think he got a two year ninety eight million dollar deal. No, no, he didn't. Didn't never quite achieve that level. This is a plug for that uh, Michael Jordan. No, the Chicago Bulls documentary. Yes. Last dance. Last dance. Yes. yes. Oh, man, Plug for so the last good. dance. Yes. That was so good. So anyway, Brent, I'm going to quietly quit this podcast and end it for the day and hope that it was actually beneficial to yeah. our listeners. Well, I mean, our listeners probably quit a long time ago. Uh, and so anyone who has stayed for the end of this, I am. Uh, hear me say I'm grateful to you. Uh, and we remain grateful to you at the RLC for sticking with us. <laughs> Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolet. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.